We need to be building like a values aligned base of folks in elected office to be able to really articulate those things and realize that our future is actually not about corporate interests, um, but the well-being of, of our people. Hi, Vicki Robin here, host of What Could Possibly Go Right, a project of the Post Carbon Institute. We interview cultural scouts, people who see far and serve the common good to help us all see more clearly and act more courageously in times of great change. My guest today is Danny Sigwalt, a native of Washington, DC. She has spent much of her career moving between movement building and youth leadership development, working to marry the two into one cohesive strategic reality. She cut her organizing teeth providing solidarity, childcare for housing rights advocates in DC, fighting the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and with the Occupy DC movement. She joined the Power Shift Network as operations director and has been supporting the organization in exploring better distribution of leadership energy for long-term sustainability ever since. The Power Shift Network mobilizes the collective power of young people to mitigate climate change and create a just, clean energy future and resilient, thriving communities for all. And now here's my interview with Danny. Hi, Danny, and welcome to What Could Possibly Go Right. And I have to say that you are the most radical guests I've had, and I'll bet that's a compliment, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. In a piece in Medium, I, and I don't often read things, but I mean, because I've been sort of researching you, I'm doing this uh, in Medium, you said to show up for Black folks in the climate movement, it means consciously choosing your movement homes. It means looking at who's in the room and asking why Black folks aren't there. Choosing carefully means leaving and finding the work that Black folks, Indigenous folks and folks of color are leading and plugging into that. And, I, and so, and here on the website, you say, we're committed to action, mutual support and solidarity. We're building a strong intersectional bottom-up movement to take on the climate crisis, shift the power and change the system. Yes. Um, and you're focused on youth. And you know, what you just said there is the fundamental truth that sometimes gets sugar-coated um, and also the spokespeople for this truth are often sort of prettied up so that, you know, we can, you know, people who don't agree can, can take it on. But so as you may remember, the point of this podcast is not analysis of what went very, very wrong or an outline of our plan to make it right. Rather, we turn to people like mm -hmm. you who've had their eyes on the horizon, who've been strategic, who've won and lost and won again, who are seasoned to tell us what you see emerging that bodes well. We started the podcast in the midst of the pandemic and the massive international response to the murder of George Floyd, then the election, then January 6th. But now we are opening up again, ready or not. People want to get back to normal. And as you and I know, that's abnormal. And it's time for people like you to notice opportunities for change that are ripe and already blossoming and could blossom more if we pay attention. So in that vein, I am pitching you our one and still relevant question. In the midst of all that seems to be going wrong, what could possibly go right? 
I love that. Thank you so much for having me, Vicki. Um, there's so many things that can go right because there are so many opportunities that we are looking at today. I think, I think that a lot of us saw at the beginning of the pandemic um, this moment, this glistening moment of what is possible when it comes to restoring ecological life. There were all of those pictures of like the fish flying in Venice and the open, beautiful blue skies in Delhi, which are normally very polluted. And um, I think that this year and a half of, of forced reflection for a lot of us and forced pause has created a lot of new opportunities, especially for young folks who have, you know, both seen what is possible if we are able to slow down and pause and reflect and be thoughtful and intentional in our in our activism and also in terms of the ability for our entire lives to be crashing to crash in on us at um at just a second's notice. Um I think that in terms of a movement ecology we are in a moment thanks to incredible black feminists like kimberly crenshaw and audrey lord and the kambahi river collective and all of these other elders in the movement who have um brought us the language and analysis around intersectionality that's really helped us um build out frameworks to deeply understand the interconnectedness of um of like all of the various systems that are causing us harm, causing us as individual humans harm, causing collective um, groups of marginalized humans harm and the environment as a whole. So I think I think that there's like a very real willingness and commitment to get things right in terms of um, policy and in terms of community building and a willingness to pause and reflect. Um, and my favorite thing about working with young folks in this particular moment is that people are really willing and committed to, you know, a black feminist framework that centers people who are most deeply impacted. Um, and there's there's a like a growing consciousness about what that means. Um, at all times, there are new groups and new marginalizations that come into collective consciousness. But there's a willingness not to leave anybody behind in the work that we're doing, which feels newer to me. Um, and feels more normalized, which I really, really appreciate the ways that we are building a future that works for us all and the commitment that people have to do that rather than um, rather than like being OK with individual groups having their individual moments, but letting letting folks really think through the implications of the decisions that we're making on folks who are traditionally marginalized. I think that the disability justice movement has really done so much fantastic work in lifting up folks' consciousnesses. Um, there's a lot of beauty on the horizon. Yeah, so I, I wonder, um, you know, clearly I'm not of your generation. Um, and, um, and I wonder if this positivity that you see is located, it's like increases as you go down the age scale. You know, so that, I mean, statistics say that it's young people are easily 50% positive about socialism and people in mm -hmm. my generation are still like in the Cold War. You know, we're still yeah. like duck and cover. That's what mm -hmm. I grew up with. So, mm -hmm. so is it, is it that the younger the person is, the more open they are to change and the more radical they are? 
I mean, I, I think that that's always been the case to a big degree, right? Like, the people who are young now are definitely a new generation, but I think that there's something um, across across movements, across time that has brought, like, has strung together young people, and young folks have always been at the forefront of social movements because young people understand that they have the most to lose, right, because they are going to be living for the longest <laughs> in whatever reality it is that we're building together, and also... Um, young folks have had less time to be indoctrinated. Exactly. And I was um, very radical yeah. when I was young, so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, thinking about the Vietnam War, thinking about the suffrage movement, even going back to abolitionists, like, young folks have always been at the forefront of social movements, not just in the U.S., but internationally, um, because when you have kids and when you have responsibilities and all of these things that becomes much, much more, more difficult. And also, um, like policies like austerity measures and things of that nature are going to have the biggest impacts on young folks. So they're direct, most directly impacted by negative policies, thinking about social security and like all of these things, those, those policies end up, um, benefiting older folks on the backs of younger folks. And we have a really, um, really strong and strategic analysis about what that means for our lives and for our futures. Yeah, and so I mean, I know I know I asked you in the beginning to not do the analysis, but I wonder what are the policies that you know the young folks in your movement, you know, if there were one or two that would be sort of linchpin policies um, that you know are getting people really excited, like mm -hmm. I'm going to work on that. Yeah, I mean, I think. I think the policies that get folks most excited are the policies that are going to have lots of impacts across different like issue areas, right? So um, the Green New Deal has obviously been a really big deal for young folks, um, partially because of like green infrastructure, right? But there's a lot of conversation and a lot of intentionality going into what the individual policies um, are or individual programs are that go into the Green New Deal because something so massive has, you know, as much of an opportunity to go incredibly well as incredibly badly. Um, and it's really important that we are framing, you know, government investments to go towards people and not corporations. But the part of the Green New Deal that a lot of young folks are really excited about that might be a separate program is the Civilian uh, Climate Corps because the way that our economy has been working out um, in terms of both uh, young folks' ability to get jobs in terms of debt burdens that young folks coming out of school have now, the housing uh, costs, like all of these things come together to make an incredibly horrific economic situation for millennials and Gen Zers that really investing in opportunities for young folks to have access to the living wages um, is really, really, really critical, um, both for our generation and the entire economy as a whole, because you know, we see things like birth rates declining so drastically. Um, and that's happening because we're just so economically marginalized as a generation or as generations of younger people. Um, so I'm really excited about that. And I think that the other thing, especially coming from a climate perspective, that's important to talk about is that 
there's a variety of programs and policies and coming from a climate lens it's really important for us to understand that like housing policy is a climate policy and immigration is a climate policy and part of part of the new newer generation of youth activists and why i appreciate them so so deeply is that there is a willingness to show up and bring that articulation and bring people together around it right so like uh, United We Dream and like DACA, um, Deferred Action for Youth Arrivals, um, Child Arrivals, um, recipients and activists have been out here really pushing for immigration reform. Um, I've been really, really happy to see journalists and see narrative folks really pushing uh, and understanding that deep immigration reform really needs to be a part of a holistic uh, climate policy because, you know, so many Latin American folks are coming to the states now because of the impacts of the hurricanes and that those things aren't separate like really just like understanding that they're not separate and that we need to be building like a values aligned base um of folks in elected office to be able to like really articulate those things and um realize that our future is actually not about corporate interests um but the well-being of of our people yeah right and and so um where how is the activism going now i mean we've had like a, a year plus of like like flocking online mm -hmm. and we used to see you know like like we used to talk about people in the streets yeah how is how is it now people in the streets where are people in the streets now yeah i mean there have been massive waves of mutual aid um for mm. starters right like I, I know a lot of people and a lot of organizations really shifted um pretty drastically at the beginning of the pandemic to to focus on people meeting people's needs in the community and both organizations and individuals have been building into that and the thing about mutual aid is that it's it's a power building technique right so like through doing mutual aid, we're building relationships, like deep relationships with people in our communities and also building power because we're um, removing the level of control that the economic, like, what is the word, word that I'm looking for? That like the normative economy um, has over our lives. So by building mutual aid frameworks and networks across our communities, we're, we're going to be more able to mobilize humans who had been like left out, who might not have had capacity. We're going to have the ability to do things like offer child care so that people can actually mobilize when when the time comes, when it feels safe and when it feels appropriate. Um, but also I think that lo local resiliency piece is a really important thing there too. Like lots of folks have been really invested in figuring out what it looks like to grow their own food, to, um, to lessen their dependence on, on an economic system that's really been invested in, in, um, extracting from us, um, to be able to, to produce in our own communities and share and build abundance locally. Yeah. And, and so how does this is there sort of a, a solidarity with what we've called essential workers? I mean, because essential workers are in a way are exactly who you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of those people end up being um, being the folks that are are being welcomed into community mutual aid programs and practices. Um, I've seen so many so many wonderful things here in DC where I live happening um, that are like both essential things and like there's a collective of people who 
fake birthday cakes <laughs> for yeah for folks for kids specifically um but like every month they'll like take orders and just like bake these really beautiful cakes with like very cute decorations and put a lot of care and love into it and i think that um that kind of care and love is something that has to really be cultivated and is also really important for for climate resiliency um, as a whole in terms of like our abilities to to withstand climate change in the long run because it's coming and we in a lot of ways covid um covid is like proven to be um kind of a microcosm of what that can look like in terms of like the government ignoring the science and the government investing in corporations over individual relief packages and and things like that um where folks are getting a lot of really good practice and building in building in the the practices and like procedures to be able to take care of one another on a local level which is really beautiful Mm. You said you looked excited and you said a lot of cool stuff is going on in DC. Besides birthday cakes, do you have any other stories? Um, I'm trying to think. I haven't been like at the center of it, but you know, just like really great examples of like uh tenants organizing their buildings through rent strikes and pushing the city to um to support excluded workers, so folks who are undocumented, who haven't, or, like, for whatever other reason, like, don't have the paper evidence necessary to be able to collect on unemployment, to be able to to support those folks. It's just, like, a really, a lot of really beautiful community organizing happening to make sure both, like, within and outside of the government to make sure that folks' needs are being met. Yeah, so now we're, now the economy is opening up, you know, <laughs> right? And so, you know, according to the newspapers, uh, what newspapers do you read, Vicki? Well, I read a lot. Um, yeah, so that it's still difficult, you know, co- companies are, are still finding it hard to attract workers at wages they were able to attract workers before. Yeah. You know, people don't want to work for under $15 an hour. No, it's just not worth it to them. And I think a lot of people have figured out how to make enough money um, outside the dominant economy. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it's 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 true that under times of duress, there's an increased solidarity, and then when the duress is off, that people start to try to you know individualize their solutions. Um, What's holding together the movements that you've built built under the duress of of um, COVID and uh, also the Trump administration? Yeah, just let's, say, just let's say it. Yeah, no, I'm I'm making a face because it's not me who's building it, right? Like it's the folks who I'm working with um, who are doing the work, and I in no shape, way, shape, or form want <laughs> want to yeah. be taking credit right. for it. And they're they're like lots like obviously many 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 times the number of folks uh who i am working with who are not who i'm not working with who are doing so much incredible work um but i think that when we're talking about the movement landscape as a whole i think for starters there's like a certain level of consciousness that exists because of folks like the fight for 15 around just like the level of inequity and folks have been doing really good education work i think um that folks have a deeper understanding about how how everything is so broken that like opting it back into a system that just doesn't work and didn't work 
becomes even more unpalatable. I think that people were really forced to figure out uh, how to configure their lives in in community um, to like re reduce dependence on on the economy and economic system that we live in. Um, and I think that there's so many layers to that that um, around like the political education that people have been pushing for so long and also the availability for support that folks don't feel like they're by themselves. And I mean, working for $7.25, which is the federal minimum wage, is just unfathomable. Like the idea of trying to sustain yourself, let alone a family on that kind of money. Um, it makes a lot of sense why that doesn't make sense to people, especially when they have other people in their communities who have their back and when they can spend their time and energy supporting other people, um, whether or not there's like a direct financial benefit to it, understanding that um, for us to survive and thrive, it's about a lot more than just money. Um, is really powerful. It's a really powerful lesson that I think a lot of people have, have absorbed, whether or not that's been directly through an organized mutual aid effort or because families are coming together. Um, folks, I hope, are able to find resources outside of the government and outside of jobs to be able to to figure out how to live their lives, um, ultimately. And in the long run, will hopefully either like encourage people to double down on a community level to be able to provide for one another or um, push the government to take more responsibility. And I think to some degree we're seeing that happen, right? With the child tax benefit that's about to come into effect, that's gonna have a lot of really positive effects on people and other things um, in like, this bill that Biden is pulling together, there's a lot of really, really exciting things that could be really transformative for folks. And it's interesting to see and think about how that's going to play out in terms of like the government coming in and providing those resources and lessening the dependency on, on local, um, local support and resiliency practices to see like how that evens out because um, depending on how you look at it, both things are socialism. Uh, <laughs> right, right? Yeah. so it's like right. what what version is gonna win and what is gonna meet the most people's needs i think is a really interesting interrogation that i think more folks would be talking about i've been involved in what's been called the simplicity movement for mm -hmm. many years back to the land yeah really i've been um involved in mutual aid you know like you know analyzing what needs can money fill and what are needs that money can't fill and all that stuff. And so it sounds to me like there's a possibility that what you're seeing, you know, what you, you're not, you, I, I've corrected myself, you know, what the movements are seeing mm -hmm. is, you know, it's very hard from top down to sell simplicity, which without it sounding like, okay, get over it and just make do, you know, we're going to keep, you know, we're going to keep the economy rolling as it was. Uh, but that people are discovering for themselves, you yeah. know, I and, and um, what do you think it's going to take to stay bonded with that, the practices? Um, yeah, I'm just really curious about what's going to stick. You know, what do we see now? 
that's going to stick. And I'm just asking you as a cultural scout, you know, Mm -hmm. what your perceptions are. Yeah, I think that that's a great question. I think, I think to some degree, it's gonna have to be, you know, a, a destruction of a lot of systems that exist right now, in terms of the multinational corporations who are exploiting people to be able to exploit us in a different way as consumers like exploiting workers abroad to then exploit us as consumers here in the states and like not just in the states right like exploiting workers in the states it's all it's all terrible and global um in different ways i think i think lessening our ability to have access to cheap goods overall and thinking about you know the plastic production and how that's ruining the planet um real real efforts to shift shift culturally rather than just um thinking about the ways that new technologies and pushing for new technologies is going to be a huge piece of it but ultimately um you know I, I work in climate and i am um like not necessarily an optimist when it comes to it um we are we are like barreling towards something really really bad and it's going to continue to shift like there is not going to be a continuation of normal period regardless of what technologies or plans or whatever we're coming into in the next couple of years so i think i think disaster (laughs) is a part of it right like we think about folks who came of age during the depression right like there's um there's all of these stereotypes that exist of these folks of like saving wrapping paper or reusing things until they fall apart and that came out of that kind of mentality of there is not access to these things things are bad we are in a disaster mode um i think that that's going to continue and i think that there's there's pieces around how we build infrastructure um that are going to be really important over the next couple of years thinking about the food system for example um, that entire supply chain could like disappear. There's only w- one breed of banana that we have access to, you know, like entire con- economies can collapse because of a bug um, and or a fungus or whatever. And we really need to be really thoughtful about that and the way that we're investing. And I think that a longer term understanding of what we're up against is going to be our best bet and also necessity. Yeah, it's, um, I really hear you sort of like, like, when I listen, I just feel like all the balls are sort of rolling around to mutual aid. That's sort of like a foundational piece is that of people discovering one another as resources, not in an exploitative way, but in that mutuality and reciprocity way, which for me and my work has been trying to, you know, trying to make that seem like the funnest game in town. Um, and I also hear what you're saying, and it's it it's just something for me, you, people in movements, people listening, is to really understand that we have a window. And if it breaks down too fast, too far, and people can't keep up with it, then it's not gonna it's it's gonna be sort of the 
the darker scenarios. If it, if it, if, if we can like hold on to what we've learned, you know, mm-hmm. in marginalized communities and the analysis that we're all in this together, you know, the experience that we're all in this together, the, the preference for not shooting out of your social circles, if you have an opportunity to like, you know, yeah. um, yeah, so if if these it's like if these things can be reinforced practically, you know, like just things like we have a buy nothing network where I live mm-hmm. and stuff's moving around all the time. And yeah. every time something moves, people love each other more. I mean, that's the cool thing. Yeah. So, uh, you know, all of these networks that have grown up where people are realizing we can give away, we can give to one another, and it's going to be better. Um, And so (laughs) I just feel like that's such an important piece of what you're doing is reinforcing the positives, not the like, la la, oh, isn't it fun? You know, we don't have anything, any wheels anymore. Walking is great. (laughs) It's, it's that, yeah, it's like, like, you know, it's sort of like that narrow passage where we're going to make it through if we make it through together. Yeah. And the people who don't know how to do that are going to try to buy their way through or they're just not going to be able to do it. So super important what you're doing. Um, Do you have any last comments before we we wind up? I mean, I think that one of the things that's most important to take away from these kind of conversations, especially for folks with, you know, different kinds of privilege, whether that's racial privilege, gender privilege, class privilege, is that folks who have been marginalized forever are the ones who know the most about mutual aid. And they might not have that language, right? They might not have that approach. Um, But that kind of way of living where you're dependent on people in your community to help you care for yourself and others in your family is really the key. Um, Mutual aid isn't a new idea and we really need to be like looking to and lifting up the folks who have been doing it forever who live in that way rather than um, rather than thinking that we're inventing something new and and building leadership. building leadership among folks for whom it's like a political practice rather than a way of being, if that makes Mm, sense. Totally. It's a relational practice. Mm -hmm. And the, um, yeah, of course. I mean, you know, sort of like the traditionally communities of color have figured this out big time. And it's um, a little hard for people of my skin tone to drop into that even though i've spent my life trying to do that in my own way and educating yeah. people to do that um yeah it's i actually you know what you're saying i it, it i don't like the word hope very much i like more like sort of something more gritty like um but it does feel like there's some foundation that's come yeah. out of this period of time um that it's really good to be aware of really good to be aware of and the context you're talking about about don't think that you know (laughs) that you're inventing something you know um and as you say political but that it is a an emergent phenomenon and that intersectionality is 
super important. So anyway, thank you so much, Danny, for taking some time yeah, no and sharing your thoughts. Uh, I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five-star review so that this hopeful message can get out to more people. Check out Post Carbon Institute's Resilience website for show notes and for more guest information. Thanks also to Asher Miller, Amy Burringrood, and Clara Winter of Post Carbon Institute, plus production assistant Michelle Wig from frugalityandfreedom.com.